Good morning. Last week, Alex brought us a great sermon, which talked about what our attitude should be with regards to truth. How do we handle it when someone confronts us with a message that is contrary to the way we've been living? Do we get angry at them, and do we get defensive about doing things our way and prideful that we know what's best? Or do we listen to the message that's being brought to us and verify that it's true and then change our ways to accommodate what God wants us to do? That's a very needed message, and I'm glad that he preached it. And with the great passion that he always has, I'm glad that he brought that message. But there's another side to that that we also need to consider. Alex talked to us about having the right spirit with regards to truth. But how do we know the message we're bringing people is truth? I know I need to have the right attitude when someone brings me the truth and tells me that I need to change. Okay, I should do that. But I also need to make sure the message that you're bringing me is the actual message of God and not just your opinions or your own likes and dislikes. A lot of people love to push their pet peeves and tell people what they should do and shouldn't do based solely on their own personal preferences, but they ain't God. So how do I know the message you're bringing me actually is God? How do I know that the Bible that you're bringing me is the Word of God? I know it claims to be, but so do many other religious texts claim to be the message from the great maker on high or however they describe the higher power that made us all. How do I know that that higher power who made us all is Jehovah and did inspire the 66 writings we call the Holy Bible? So how do I know the truth is really the truth? The answer is because the Spirit of God is in the truth. So Alex talked to us last week about having the right spirit of truth, little s spirit, our own attitude, personal spirits with regard to truth, the spirit of truth. But we're going to talk about now is making sure that we understand the spirit is in the truth. Not just the spirit of truth, but the spirit is in the truth. And that is the Holy Spirit in the truth of the Word of God, which is what makes it the truth. So, first of all, who is the Holy Spirit? Who is the spirit that is the spiritual author of the Word of God? Who is the Holy Spirit that we are claiming is the author of the Bible? Well, the Holy Spirit is God. A lot of people will describe the Holy Spirit with phrases like, it is a force of nature, or it is a power that God uses, or it is a feeling inside you. The Holy Spirit is not an it. You would not like it if someone called you an it. That's degrading. That's dehumanizing. I know the Holy Spirit is not a human, but he is a person. He is a a, a living being, and he deserves the, the same respect with respect to pronouns as we give each other. He is a he and she is a she. Well, God describes himself in the Bible as a he, and he is the Holy Spirit. God the Father is a he. We would never think of calling God the Father an it. God the Son is a he. We would never call Jesus an it. God the Spirit is likewise a he. In fact, Jesus even calls him that repeatedly whenever he describes the Holy Spirit, such as in John 16, 13, where Jesus is talking to his apostles about leaving them, but promising them the Holy Spirit would come to them in his absence. And he says, he, the Spirit of truth, and when he has come, he will guide you into all truth, and he won't speak of himself, but the things that he hears, he will speak, and so forth. In fact, seven times in that one verse, John 16, 13, does Jesus describe the Holy Spirit not as an it, not as a force, not as this tool used by God, but as God himself, as a he. So that's who the Holy Spirit is. He is God. He is just as much God as the Father is God or the Son is God. He's God. God is a singular being with a three-part nature, if you will. And one of those parts is the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit is the 
um, the inspirer of the Word of God. The men who wrote the books of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, the 40-some authors over the course of a thousand years spread across two continents uh, from different cultures and with different uh, languages with which, they, with, with which they spoke, different social classes they belonged to, uh, rich or poor, they were all inspired by the same one God. Now, I say that, but do we have proof? You don't have to have proof, mind you. You don't need God to spell out and show his work like a student taking a math test to his teacher. You don't necessarily need God to tell you and explain to you the way he does his business. Nevertheless, setting aside the fact that we need to have faith, if you want it, it's there. The proof is there that God inspired the Word of God, that God inspired the book we call the Bible. In fact, I would argue that it is reasonable for God to have inspired something and it is logical for God to have inspired the Word of God. Now you have to talk about, or the Bible. Now you have to talk about the first thing first, the idea of it's reasonable that he would inspire something, because there are in fact quite a few people who believe in a higher power, but don't believe that higher power has talked to us at all. There are people who call themselves deists, who believe that you can find God through nature and through the aspects of creation that confirm there is a higher power, but that that higher power is not necessarily a talking type. That he is not one to reveal himself directly to his creation. Thomas Jefferson was famously a deist. In fact, that's why he phrases in the Declaration of Independence the phrase, nature's God, the way he, he phrases it. He, he added that in because he believed the creator was a real being, but not a personal being. Not one who wants to have a communication with his people. Well, I don't believe that. I think, in fact, it is only reasonable to conclude that God would want to talk to his people. In fact, I'll bet you, if you think about it, you believe that too. As a matter of fact, if anybody has a pet, they believe that. Because we have pets that we make part of our family. Dogs, especially, are wonderful pets because they they show so much emotion and loving emotion to their owners, to their masters. You come home from work, or even if you just leave the house to get the mail and you're gone 30 seconds, your dog will react to your reappearance as if you're a long-lost loved one who's finally come home. Our pets love us unconditionally. They lick our faces and they go fetch our mail. They do all kinds of wonderful things for us because they're our pets. And we love them because they're our pets. We name our pets. We, we let them sleep in our beds and we feed them. We nurture them. Even Even bad pets get that kind of attention. You think about a goldfish in a bowl. A goldfish doesn't know who you are. It doesn't even notice when you leave the house or come back. A goldfish's memory is so short that you can say one sentence to it, and it will have forgotten the first word by the time you've gotten to the last word in the sentence. Goldfish are dumb animals. They're really terrible pets. I don't know why we do that to ourselves. They're terrible pets. They live for a few weeks, and then they die. Now, when your dog dies... You bury it in the yard. You have a big ceremony. You weep and you cry. When your goldfish dies, you just flush it. It doesn't mean anything to you. You give it the most degrading burial possible. Not even a proper burial at sea. You just flush the thing. And nevertheless, nevertheless, that goldfish, while living in your house, you feed it. And I bet you even name it. And I'll bet you, you even talk to it while you're feeding it. And you name the thing and you love the thing because why? I'm not naming it. It's your fish. I'm not going to feed it. It's your fish. I'm not going to talk to it. It's your fish. But you'll talk to it. You'll love it. And you'll say, because that's my fish. Now, if I do that, if I have that innate desire 
to communicate and to have a relationship with lower life forms from me? Isn't it reasonable that my maker would likewise want to communicate with me, that he would want to name me, that he would have a purpose for me, that he would want to have a relationship with me? I don't buy the idea that God made everything and then just backed off and has nothing to do with us. It would make more sense to me that there is no God at all and that all of this just spontaneously appeared like the atheists believe than to believe there actually is a creator, but he doesn't want to talk to me. That doesn't make any sense. No, what is reasonable to think is that God wants to talk to us. Now, if you listen to the psalmist, uh, David writes a beautiful psalm, Psalm 19 in the Bible. And he opens that psalm by saying, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day in the day utters speech, and night in the night uh, shows the majesty of God, and shows the creation of God that he exists. In other words, if you look up at the sky, and you see the, the velvety blue, bluish black of the night sky, with those little white pinpricks of the stars, each one of which, more, more often than not, are a thousand times bigger than the star around which our planet uh, revolves. And yet, God made all that. When you see all that, you can't help but just know something made that. It didn't just come from nothing. Some Nothing didn't just get busy and make something. A creator created. That is a logical conclusion. And it is therefore reasonable to think that creator would want to talk to us. Because I'm here. He made me. And I'm different from the dog. And I'm different from the fish. And I'm different from the ape. Because unlike those animals, I think... I can reason and I can ask questions like, why am I here? Who am I? Who put me here? What does he want with me? So I believe it is only reasonable to think that the God who made me would want to tell me the answer to those questions. With that being said, I think it is logical to conclude that the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, the 66 books of inspired writ, that the Bible is the way in which God chose to do that. That the Bible is the message, the truth about who I am, why I'm here, and what he wants with me, what he has in store for me, what my expectations are, what his expectations are for me, and what blessings I have awaiting me. The Bible is that source. It is that truth. And it is logical to believe that. It is logical to believe the Holy Spirit is in that truth, making it the truth. Why is it logical? Because if the Holy Spirit did not inspire the Bible, who wrote it? Now, I know there are some 40 men who wrote it. You got men like Moses and Joshua and David and, and Peter and Paul and John. Men wrote the Bible, but they were inspired, I'm saying, by God. And if God is not the inspirer, if the Holy Spirit was not working through those men to pin that book the way God wanted it pinned, using their own personalities and their own styles, yes, but still His will, if the Holy Spirit was not involved, then who are we really talking about here that wrote it? Because somebody wrote it. I, got, I have one right here. Somebody wrote the Bible. Somebody put these words on paper. Who did if it wasn't the Holy Spirit inspiring them? If it was just men, then who are we talking about? They must be one of three things, because everybody is one of three kinds of people. Either you are a good person, or you are a bad person, or you are a crazy person. So, who wrote the Bible, if not God, inspiring them to do so? Was it just good people? Now, that's what some people will say. Skeptics will say, Good people wrote the Bible. They meant well. They were just trying to help people. They were just, you know, offering some words of advice and wisdom and, you know, nice stories to give people some guidance and some confidence, blah, blah, blah. Okay. 
Yes, but the problem is those good people claimed to be inspired. David says in 2 Samuel 23, 2, that the Spirit was on his tongue, and he spoke by that inspiration, that inspirit shun, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit was with David, he says. And you go to the New Testament, where the law of Christ is explained and written in great detail by men like Paul and Peter and John and James and Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those men wrote down the message for me and us to believe, telling us in that message that if we reject the words that they wrote, we will burn in hell. And that our only hope of not burning in hell is to heed their words for how we should live and follow their guidance for how we should live. If they're just lying and they're making this up, that's not good people. Good people wouldn't do that. To lie and concoct a plan to put them in power and me to follow them under the the threat of burning for all eternity, that's not good people. At least not just good people. So what are they if they're not good people? Well, they must be bad people. That's what critics of the Bible will say, some of them. They'll say, no, they were bad people. They were liars. They were con artists. They were conspirators who worked out the scheme, and they presented the message to the people so that they would follow them, and they could have the leadership, and they could be at the top of the pyramid. Except they suffered for it. Now, now people suffer for lies all the time, sure. People have been known to suffer for a lie. Not necessarily die for a lie, but let's just set that aside for a second. If they are just bad people... Bad people don't write a book that condemns themselves, right? Why would a bad person write a book that condemns bad people? Okay, in general, maybe, sure, but not Peter writing a book that condemns Peter. Not Paul writing a book that condemns Paul. If these men are trying to put themselves on the top of some pedestal, why do they keep trying to lower themselves and humble themselves and put everyone above them? Even better, why would Paul, as he does in Galatians chapter 2, go to Peter and rebuke him for racism? Now, you think about all the things that could undo the work of a group of people. Racism would undo that work. And yet Paul openly defies his fellow apostle, Peter, by saying, you're being prejudiced by favoring Jew against Gentile. And he calls him out on it. If this is just a conspiracy of liars, air your dirty laundry in private, not in public. And yet they threaten to bring the whole house of cards down. That doesn't make any sense. Now, I refuse to believe because it's not reasonable. It's not logical, really what it is. It's not logical to think that just good people wrote the Bible. It's not logical to think just bad people wrote the Bible. So the only kind of person who's left is crazy people. And are we really going to sit here and say that some 40-odd crazy people over the course of a 1,000 years different continents, speaking different languages, all sometimes writing at the exact same time as each other with no knowledge of each other, all wrote a book. 66 parts to one whole that fit perfectly together, that weave the his story of Jesus Christ and all of mankind, and how where we came from and what God wants of us and where we're going if we follow him, that it all fits together like jigsaw puzzle pieces that just snap in place and create the beautiful canvas of inspiration. I'm supposed to believe that some 40 different crazy people over the course of a thousand years did that. That's a fairy tale. That's a fantasy. You, you, you Skeptics, they'll tell me that I believe in fairy tales and I believe in fantasies. No, that's a fantasy. It's a fantasy to think that good people alone wrote the Bible. That doesn't make any sense. It's a fantasy to think that bad people wrote the Bible. It's a fantasy to think that insane people wrote the Bible. And if that's the only three kinds of people there are, who's left? Inspired people. 
Who wrote the Bible? Inspired people. The Holy Spirit put his spirit in people. Inspire. In spirit. That's where the word comes from. And he moved their thoughts and he moved their pens to pen the 66 volume book that we call the word of God. That's how I know. Now, I don't need to know that. I have faith. And I, have, I walk by faith. I don't need that evidence. But if someone wants to come to me and say, who are you to tell me with that book that I need to change? That's how. That's why. Because the Holy Spirit put his, his truth in this truth, making it the truth. The Spirit is in the truth. So who are you to reject it? Who am I to turn it down? I hope that you consider what we talked about this morning and hope that you will look at your Bible with newfound appreciation. That book that you have on your shelf right now or in your lap right now or in your hand on your cell phone is so easily accessed right now is not just the words of men. It is the work of the Holy Spirit who put himself on those pages so that you could understand what God wants with you and where he's going to take you if you'll follow him. Thank you very much. And while I've got you on the phone, if you want to subscribe, you can do so by going to anchor.fm slash Matthew-Martin414. I've got uh, free audio files here and there that I'll release every now and then. But for the most part, I put everything behind a massive giant paywall where you have to pay upwards of, I think it's 99 cents a month. So if you can if you can manage that a dollar a month, <clears throat> that's, you know, it's not easy. But if you want to whip out a buck, then you get hundreds of audio files of all of my sermons and classes and devotionals. So it's uh, anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M slash Matthew, M-A-T-T-H-E-W dash Martin 414 and hit subscribe for a buck and you get all my hundreds and hundreds of audio files. All right. Thank you.